Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 212, The Enablers, Part 3. Today we wrap up the series that we did on Patreon on Joseph Stalin's enablers, the men who allowed Stalin to terrorize his country since uh, he took over and then died in 1953. I want to announce today something that's interesting and what we're going to do in the future of this podcast, our next episode. And it was presented to me by a listener, Ian G. And it has to do with Peter III and something that I had never realized. Ian has proposed that he believes that Tsar Peter III was actually autistic. And when I began to look at his evidence and look at the uh, work that's been written about him, I had to agree. There was a very distinct possibility that he was. So in our next episode, we're going to cover that, and it's going to come out in a few weeks, because I found it a fascinating subject, and I really want to thank him for bringing that to my attention and also for sending me some really compelling evidence to that fact. So enjoy today's episode, and in a few weeks... If everything works out well, we're going to have another episode on this subject of Peter III and autism. So until then, Dasvidanya Ispasiba Bolshoya. Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Patreon edition, The Enablers, Part 3. Today, we wrap up our series on the men who enabled Joseph Stalin and his dictatorial reign over the Soviet Union. The final four are Clement Voroshilov, Semyon Budyani, Andrei Andreev, and Mikhail Kalinin. Clement Yefremovich Voroshilov was born on February 4, 1881, in an area now in eastern Ukraine to an ethnic Russian family. By the age of 10, Klim, as he was often called, worked in the Donbass coal mines, and by 15, he began working in a local factory. It was in these conditions that many of the revolutionary soldiers emerged in the early 20th century in the Russian Empire, and Voroshilov was no exception. He would join the Bolshevik faction of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party in 1905 at the age of 24. Klim would meet and become roommates with Stalin at the Fourth Unity Congress of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, held between April 10th through the 25th, 1906, in Stockholm, Sweden. It is here that the split between the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks boiled over. While the actual break was said to have occurred in 1903, it was at this meeting in Sweden that it became apparent. Voroshilov would side with Lenin over the Menshevik leader, Julius Martov. There really isn't very much information about Voroshilov from 1905 to the October Revolution of 1917. Leon Trotsky had this to say, quote, The life of Voroshilov illustrates the career of a worker revolutionist with its leadership in strikes, underground work, imprisonment, and exile. He was a national revolutionary democrat from among the workers. In Voroshilov's official biographies, the years 1914 to 1917 are a great blank as is true of most of the present leaders. The secret of this blank is that most of these men were patriots during the war and discontinued their revolutionary work. 
The description of Clement from Sheila Fitzpatrick's book on Stalin's team, which I highly recommend and will be reviewing soon. It was only after the February Revolution that, as a professional revolutionary, he established contact with soldiers in Petrograd and was elected their delegate to the Petrograd Soviet. After forming a partisan resistance unit in Ukraine during the Civil War, he created and led the 1st Cavalry Army, participating in the war with Poland in 1920-21. After the war, he remained associated with the military, becoming defense minister, a position earlier held by Trotsky in 1925. At the end of the same year, he became a member of the Politburo. In Voroshilov, Stalin found a strong ally in his battle to wrest control of the Bolshevik party from Leon Trotsky. Trotsky kept sending former czarist military men to Tsaritsyn during the Civil War, where Stalin and Voroshilov were leading the fighting. This angered the two, but taking Trotsky out was not going to be easy, as Edvard Radzinski puts it in his book, Stalin. Quote, Single combat with Trotsky was, however, dangerous. Stalin needed a comrade in arms to act for him when risks had to be taken. Stalin knew how to win over such people, and Voroshilov, who was not very bright, became his devoted comrade. They joined in attacking Trotsky's people, accusing them of treason. In 1933, Clement would tour Ukraine and witnessed firsthand the devastating famine that plagued the region. As Fitzpatrick writes, quote, After his annual trip south in August 1933, Voroshilov reiterated his distress at the sight of the empty, ravaged steppe, writing to Enukidze that it looked as it had after Genghis Khan or the white general Kolchak swept through in the Civil War. Even though this devastation was due to Stalin's policies, Voroshilov stuck by him through thick and thin. Orishilov would be rewarded when he was appointed People's Commissar for Defense in 1934 and a Marshal of the Soviet Union in 1935. Klim was also helping Stalin out in his fights with Kamenev, Zinoviev, Rykov, and Tomsky, and later with Bukharin. But things were changing in the relationship between Stalin and his enablers. They were now beginning to be scared of him, especially Voroshilov. He would write letters to his friend Enyukidze praising the boss, likely with the knowledge that the secret police were reading them and sending the notes up to Stalin. As I mentioned last episode, when Sergei Kirov died, things really went off the deep end. The great purges were begun to clear the swamp of potential enemies of the state. Many of the victims were supporters of Stalin, like Genrik Yagoda. Some were just not strong enough like Avil and Yukidze, Voroshilov's friends. He worked under Mikhail Kalinin in the Supreme Soviet Moscow and was known to be a so-called soft touch. And Yukidze's big problem was that several of Kamenev's relatives worked on his staff, including Lev's brother, and Yukidze would be arrested in 1936 and executed the following year. Avil was not only close to Voroshilov, but he was good friends with Molotov and Orjanokidze. Other friends and associates of Voroshilov were being arrested around him. Klim had to tread lightly and carefully. 
He was once quoted as saying, quote, Not only did I not notice these base traitors, but even when they started to unmask some of them, I didn't want to believe it. Voroshilov was unhappily in charge of purging the military. It is said that Clement signed 185 execution lists, and he was under he was the person under pressure from Stalin to order the Katyn massacre of Polish officers and intellectuals in 1940. As Monofior describes him, quote, Voroshilov, dapper, good-natured, stupid, envious and brutal, made his name in the Battle of Tsaritsyn, and in 1937 supervised the massacre of about 40,000 of his own officers. Montefiore further goes on to point out, quote, three of the five marshals, 15 of the 16 commanders, 60 of the 67 corps commanders, and all 17 commissars were shot. Stalin earnestly encouraged the witch hunt in informal meetings with officers. It was pointed out in Fitzpatrick's book that of the 25 ministers in the government, 20 were victims of the purge. Only Molotov, Mikoyan, Voroshilov, Kaganovich, and Maxim Litvinov survived. After Yezhov was finally arrested himself and replaced with Beria in 1939, could the team begin to breathe a sigh of relief. When World War II began, Voroshilov was the Soviet troops commander during the Winter War from November 1939 to January 1940. It was a disaster for the Red Army against little old Finland. The Soviets lost over 300,000 men, while the Finns lost 70,000. Stalin put the blame for the fiasco squarely on Clement's shoulders. Voroshilov screamed back at Stalin, blaming him for ordering the murder of so many of the top military minds. It seemed to have affected the boss, as he ordered 11,175 purged officers, who were still alive, and were in the gulags, to be returned to duty. Here's a conversation between Stalin and one of these men, Konstantin Rakovsky. Stalin, were you tortured? Yes, comrade Stalin. There's too many yes-men in this country, Stalin replied. Yen asked uh, Rakovsky, where's your surditch? Executed. Stalin matter-of-factly replied, pity. I wanted to make him ambassador to Yugoslavia. Voroshilov, though, lost his command, replaced by Simeon Timoshenko. The incompetency of the men in charge of the military at the time, before the invasion of the USSR by the Nazis, is almost comical, if it wasn't so tragic. As bad as Voroshilov was, others yearned for the days of cavalry charges, and you will hear more about this person, despising the idea of tanks and Katyusha rockets. It was this incompetency that Hitler believed was his opening, and that he would wipe out the Red Army easily. Voroshilov would fail pretty much any command he was given after the invasion, none more catastrophic than at Leningrad. Klim would be a non-entity for the remainder of the war. From 1945 until 1947, Voroshilov presided over the Communist Party in Hungary. Still, even there, he failed to gather the support he was expected to drum up. Stalin knew that all that Clement was suitable for was as a figurehead. He would join the newly renamed Party Central Committee, the Presidium, in 1952, 
becoming its chairman on March 15, 1953, after Stalin's death. In 1960, he asked that he be allowed to retire, as many of his old friends had been pushed aside and exiled by Khrushchev. Clement Voroshilov died on December 9, 1969, at the age of 88. Simeon Mihailovich Budyani was born on April 25, 1883, in the town of Salsk, on a farm in the Don Cossack region to a Russian family. His early life was common amongst the poor peasant class in the Russian Empire at the time. From an early age, he had to work the farm in various capacities to help put, put food on the table for his family. In 1903, he was drafted into the Russian army, serving in a dragoon, dragoon regiment during the Russo-Japanese War of 1905 or 1904-1905. Due to his excellent horse-riding skills, Budiani was accepted in the Academy for Cavalry Officers in the St. Petersburg Riding School. He would graduate first in his class in 1908. During World War I, Budiani was in the 5th Squadron in the Christian 9th of the Denmark 18th Seversky Dragoon Regiment as a non-commissioned officer. His bravery was noted on many occasions, winning St. George Cross 4th Class. His award, though, was revoked due to a fight he had with one of his superiors. One of the main problems the Russian army had during World War I was the gross incompetence of the commissioned officers. They were given their positions not for their skills, but because of their class position. More than one time, soldiers would shoot and kill their superior officers in the field of battle. Budiani would continue to serve and was awarded more medals for bravery. After the Tsar was forced to abdicate in February 1917, Simeon would turn against the establishment, becoming a radical leader. During the Russian Civil War, he would lead the 1st Cavalry Army, which helped defeat the White Army forces led by Anton Denikin. It was here that he became close to Voroshilov and, more importantly, Joseph Stalin. By 1990, he became a full-fledged member of the Bolshevik Party. When the war with Poland broke out in 1920, Budyani would lead the Red Army into early victories, driving the Poles out of Ukraine. In the Battle of Warsaw, it was Budyani who had failed to get his troops to the conflict in time, causing massive casualties. Despite this, Simeon was considered a national hero by the people of the developing Soviet Union. Budyani, though, was fixated by horses and cavalry. When the idea of mechanized tank divisions was being discussed, he would say, quote, You won't convince me. As soon as the war is declared, everyone will shout, Send for the cavalry! This fascination and inability to modernize his way of thinking would make him the laughing stock of the Red Army. Still, his almost slavish devotion to Stalin would make him and Voroshilov one of only two marshals of the Red Army to survive the purges that were coming. His personal life was interesting, as he would marry three times. Budyani's first wife, Nadezhda Ivanovna, whom he married in 1903, would die under very mysterious conditions. She was shot to death, either by a stray bullet, by Budyani's own hand, according to a fellow officer, or by her own hand. Whatever the cause, Simeon would marry Olga Stefanovna Mikhailova, 
a future member of the Bolshoi Theater the following year. While this was kind of a bad decision for Olga, as during the purge, as Stalin had done to others of his team, she was arrested and disappeared from the scene. Budyani would marry her cousin, Maria Vasilevna, who would stay with him for the rest of his life. She was 33 years younger than Simeon. Budyani's exuberant willingness to turn on his fellow Red Army officers was most apparent when it came to Marshal Tukhachevsky. Because of his insistence on building a number of tank divisions, Simeon hated Tukhachevsky. He believed that his efforts to create an independent tank corps were so inferior to horse cavalry and so illogical to him that it amounted to deliberate wrecking. We'll be back after a quick break. Have you ever wondered what the band ACDC has to do with the missing town of Doveland, Wisconsin? Or who gets to decide what music plays at the end of the world? Or whether or not the largest unsolved art heist in history was actually a cover for a different crime? Maybe you haven't wondered about these things, but that's okay. On 31, we dive into strange, true, but often lesser-known stories and the interesting theories that surround them. From space to sports, lost media to internet lore, 31 has something for everyone. Find 31 on your favorite podcast platform and dive into the why behind the weird with me, Quinn Lovecraft. 31, the why behind the weird. After Tukhachevsky was executed, Budyani himself was about to get arrested by NKVD officers. But when they arrived to take him away, he pulled out a pistol, threatening to shoot them until he had a chance to call Stalin. His friend rescinded the order, saving Budyani's life. When the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union in 1941, Budyani was in charge of Ukraine's troops. His disastrous lack of ability cost the lives of 1.5 million soldiers. Budyani was the obvious scapegoat, being replaced by the far more competent Simeon Timoshenko. He would never lead troops ever again. Budyani would live out his life as a hero of the Civil War. He would head a division of the Department of Agriculture focused on what he was best at, horse breeding. Simeon Budyani would die on October 26, 1973, at the ripe old age of 90. Our next enabler is someone who I really enjoy this name. Parents probably had a fixation here. His name was Andrei Andreevich Andreev. Born on October 30, 1895, in the northeastern part of the Smolensk Governorate. When he was 13 years old, Andreev left his small town and moved to Moscow, where he took a job as a dishwasher. By 15, he would become involved in the Bolshevik movement. Andrei would be the youngest member of Stalin's enablers. He hitched his wagon to Lenin and then to the Vojd early on. Andreev would be assigned to head the Metal Workers Union and became a member of the All-Russian Central Trade Union Council, known as the TUC. In 1919, there was strong opposition from the TUC to Lenin's plan to abolish democratic voting on industrial issues. Andreev would back Lenin, but he was to be in the minority. To pay pay back his loyalty, Lenin made Andreev the head railway workers union in 1920, along with naming him to the 19-member Central Committee. 
in another split over how the unions would be incorporated into the country or not, the Trotsky-led minority would be backed by Andreev against the positions of both Lenin and Stalin. To almost everyone, this would prove to be a fatal move. But somehow, Andreev would be one of the few not to face death. Of the 19 members on the Central Committee in 1920, only two would survive past the Great Purge. Andreev, and of course, Joseph Stalin. Andreev would be posted to several difficult jobs over the coming years, one of which was dealing with the farm's collectivization in the North Caucasus starting in 1928. He would complain bitterly to Stalin that the goals set forth were unachievable, causing the boss to lose his temper one time. Stalin apologized, which was very rare, but Andreev got the point. He ordered 6,000 kulaks to be arrested and executed, along with 20,000 deportations. Andreev would hold several different positions from 1930, when he was recalled from the Caucasus to Moscow, to 1937, when he became one of the most fervent members of those put in charge of the Great Purge. As Montefiore puts it in his biography of Stalin, Andreev, quote, became the unchallengeable master of these murderous sideshows. When you read stories about Andreev's travels to various cities in the Soviet Union, like Voronezh, Chelyabinsk, Sverdlovsk, Kursk, Tashkent, Rostov, and Krasnodar, you see the phrases 430 shot, 344 shot, 3300 arrested, 430 shot, Postyashev arrested and shot. He was also part of the arrest and execution of NKVD leader. Nikolai Yezhov. In November 1938, after attending a Komsomol meeting, which is the Communist Youth League, most of its leaders were fired, arrested, and shot. Andreev was given a number of titles, including Chairman of the Soviet Union, a post he held from 1938 until 1946. He was also Chairman of the Party Control Commission of the Central Committee, a figurehead position with little authoritative power. In 1948, Andreev would lead the ex investigation and eventual downfall and execution of, of Nikolai Vozhenensky, one of the top men in Leningrad. By 1947, ill health led to Andreev taking a lesser role in the government. By 1952, he was granted a semi-retirement, the only one who left Stalin's team on his own accord. Andrei Andreev, though, would die quite later, on December 5, 1971, at the age of 76. No one from the upper level of the government would attend his funeral. The last of Stalin's enablers we will talk about is Mikhail Ivanovich Kalinin. Born on November 19, 1875, in the Tver governorate to a peasant family, Mikhail would join the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party really early on in 1898. Before that, though, he would meet and become friends with Sergei Aleluyev, the father of Stalin's second wife, Nadezhda. Kalinin would become a Bolshevik member and was an alternate delegate to the 1912 party conference held in Prague. The reason he was not a full member was a rumor that was going around that he was a double agent for the Ohrana. 
In reality, as I mentioned in a previous episode, Roman Malinowski, a full member, was the real agent. In 1917, Kalina would be voted to be mayor of Petrograd. In 1919, he would become a full member of the Central Committee and a Politburo candidate member. When Yakov Sverdlov died in March of 1919, Kalinin would replace him as the president of the All-Russian Central Executive Committee, which was basically the titular head of the State of the Soviet Union. Later, the title was changed to Chairman of the Central Executive Committee of the USSR in 1922 and to Chairman of the Supreme Soviet's Presidium in 1938. Even though Kalinin was considered to be the head of the Soviet Union in name, his wife, Ekaterina Kalinina, was arrested during the Great Purge, tortured, and sent to a gulag to serve out a 15-year sentence. As with many of Stalin's team's wives, she would suffer greatly to keep her man in power. Ekaterina would only be released in 1946, shortly before her husband died. While Kalinin was an old Bolshevik and a devoted follower of Stalin and Lenin, he really didn't do very much aside from sign papers and preside over meetings. As Sergei Khrushchev would write about his father Nikita's reminiscences about Mikhail, quote, I don't know what practical work Kalinin carried out under Lenin, but under Stalin, he was the nominal signatory of all decrees, while in reality, he rarely took part in government business. Sometimes he was made a commission member, but people didn't take his opinion into account very much. It was embarrassing for us to see this. One simply felt sorry for Mikhail Ivanovich. Kalinin would die on June 3, 1946 of cancer at the age of 70. He was a survivor, an ally of Stalin's, and complacent in the murder of tens of thousands of people. Kalinin was given a full state funeral and had several cities named after him. The only one that remains after the end of the USSR is the former city of Konigsberg, now known as Kaliningrad. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and the series. Join me next time as we pivot and take on a totally different topic, one that I never thought to look at before. But because of this a book that I'm also going to be reviewing shortly, we're going to look at the children of Nicholas II and their tragic lives and death of the last children of the Romanov Tsar. So as always, Das Vidanya is Pasiba Bolshoya. <laughs>